Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. The NHS recently marked its 75th birthday with the kind of love in most countries reserved for a passing monarch or truly iconic celebrity. So what is it about our health service that has created such a fervent attachment among so many Brits, even when it underperforms compared to some of our continental peers? To find out, we invited the journalist, author and broadcaster Isabel Hardman onto this week's episode of the CapEx podcast to discuss her new history of the NHS, Fighting for Life. Isabel's an old colleague of mine from my reporting days, so I know firsthand just what a brilliant, insightful journalist she is. And that's something that really shines through both in this book and, I hope, our interview. Isabel, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thank you very much for being here. Feels kind of overdue, actually. This is your third book after Why We Get the Wrong Politicians and The Natural Health Service. I think the vast majority of our listeners and readers know who you are because you're on the telly a lot and you write in The Spectator which a lot of our readers read as well. Just in case there are any people who are maybe not British or don't know who you are, can you give us a very potted history of the story so far, your journalistic career? So yes, I'm the assistant editor at The Spectator. I've been there for 11 years now and I cover politics day to day for The Spectator. So I'm based in the press gallery. Before that, I was at Politics Home, which is where we met. We were assistant news editors, weren't we? And then I started my career as a housing journalist at Inside Housing, which is an amazing magazine and, and really does takes its subject very seriously. And it takes journalism very seriously. So that was a, a great start and really got me down the policy and politics route rather than just the sort of village gossip politics route. Yeah. I mean, with the greatest respect to the rest of the lobby, there are not that many people in it who have as much focus on policy as you've done down your career. And Inside Housing has, has quite a diaspora. And one of their journalists, Pete Apps, has just won the Orwell Prize. So, you know, they really... They really are one of the best trade magazines. I think they're fantastic. They do such important work. And I really actually genuinely sort of really miss my time there because when you develop a specialism like that, there's something really satisfying in knowing a sector in that much detail. I remember actually speaking of politics home when I went to some press conference during the Lansley reforms, which you write about, and there were like 20 just health journalists there. And I've never felt so ignorant <laughs> as when I was among the health service journal and all those kind of people. And you really noticed that I felt during the pandemic as well, actually. I thought 
you could understand why Downing Street are taking this decision, but I thought it was wrong of news desks. And I know I'm going to offend a lot of my lobby colleagues here, but hey, I thought it was wrong of news desks to agree that political correspondence should be in the Downing Street press briefings rather than the health and science correspondence, because, you know, we're not specialists in viruses. And, you know, there were some sort of famous moments where people said some quite daft things, but we just weren't able to hold the politicians to account for some of the stuff they were saying that actually turned out to be nonsense. I think that was a, a mistake in thinking political journalists are specialists in Westminster and in how Parliament works and how the parties work. We're not policy specialists. Some of us think we are, but we're not. Without wishing to sound oh, like this is a hagiography, it doesn't come across in the book you've just written that you aren't a specialist in kind of health stuff. So what was, obviously you've written about the NHS a lot over the last 11 odd years. I mean, what was the genesis for this particular book? How did it kind of form in your mind? Or was it that a publisher came to you and said, we need someone to write a book about the NHS, you're the person for this? The idea came from Penguin, from Tom Killingbeck, who started out as my editor. He's now actually moved on. But it was a great idea, obviously, because I agreed to do this book. He saw that this anniversary, the 75th, was coming up, realised it had been a while since anyone had written a sort of major history of the health service and wanted something that was from a journalist rather than a, you know, a social history or policy specialist. And so I was really, you know, I was delighted, flattered to be asked and then thought, gosh, I mean, this is a huge institution. How on earth am I going to cover that in one book? How on earth am I going to keep people's interests when, you know, you had rows in the 1960s over nurses' pay that in lots of ways aren't relevant today and you could sort of bump along on this very long chronological history. And so the way I approached it was really very similar to the way that I approached why we get the wrong politicians, which was want to explain to readers how this institution works today, why it does and doesn't work in the way that it does, and what its internal culture is versus its external cultural appeal. So with Parliament, obviously, we have a lot of people who are furious about politics, who think it doesn't work, who think it's broken. But often when they then start talking in detail about that, it's sort of misconceptions about how MPs, you know, spend all their time voting on their own pay. So there's a very negative cultural view of Parliament. The opposite is the case with the NHS, where obviously, as we always come back to, we had the Olympic opening ceremony celebrating the NHS, and that was not normal. It's not something other countries do, celebrating a public service. We didn't celebrate the other aspects of the 1948 welfare state. So that's fascinating. And if you talk to people who work in the health service, they have a very different view of its internal culture. It has a lot of bullying in it. Uh, there's a blame culture. It can be an exhausting job, and not just because of the emotional and physical demands that are placed on you wherever you are in the world as a nurse or a doctor but actually in terms of what the NHS expects of you because it is short-staffed. So I was really interested in the clash there between its wider perception of being this organisation that we clap and celebrate and how people inside it felt. And you mentioned in the acknowledgements that you would come away after sort of days of the archive prattling on about something you just uh, read and uh, bending your husband's ear about it and so on. In terms of your own perceptions of the health service, was there anything that really changed through the course of writing this book or maybe a misapprehension that you had before that was put to write? Yeah, quite a few things. I mean, there were things that I just didn't know about. So I didn't know about how influential Enoch Powell was, for instance, in the health service as Minister of Health in the early 1960s. He was 
the politician who got enough money from the Treasury to be able to build new district general hospitals and who worked with Chief Medical Officer George Godber on the design of these new district generals, which really gave the health service the fabric that we know today, because on the appointed day of the 5th of July 1948, there weren't any new hospitals. It was a new system of financing and organising a health service that came into being. And obviously people were able to appreciate that very personally because they weren't paying, but you didn't suddenly see hospitals and doctors and nurses springing up like mushrooms overnight. That took a lot longer. So I hadn't appreciated that. I had been aware as a journalist who'd covered the Lansley reforms, the Andrew Lansley's Health and Social Care Act 2012. I'd covered that actually when I was at Politics Home. So I've been very aware that reorganisations were an issue for the health service, not least because Andrew Lansley spent half of his time insisting that he had stuck to the manifesto pledge of no pointless top-down reorganisations because this one wasn't pointless, which was a, a semantic detail lost on most people who were very much being reorganised. So I was aware of that, but I wasn't aware of the extent of the reshuffling of this health service, particularly since the 80s. And again, just to sort of you know, come back to the kind of Tory influence in this, it's absolutely right to say this is Labour's health service. And this was designed by Labour politician Nye Bevan, who nationalised the hospitals and did a lot of things in terms of funding that Tories just would never have done. But the imprint that the Tories have left on the health service is significant as well, not just in terms of the hospital plan in the 60s, but also Margaret Thatcher's two big reforms, the internal markets, I'm sure we'll talk about that in more detail, you know, very famous introduction of the purchaser-provider split at the end of the 80s. But before that, she introduced management to the NHS. Prior to the 1980s, hospitals was managed by these weird committees. It was very kind of post-war, ex-military kind of organisation, and it just wasn't working anymore by the 80s. And there was this famous report by Roy Griffiths from Sainsbury's who said if Florence Nightingale were walking the wards of most hospitals, she'd be looking for who was in charge and she wouldn't be able to find them. And so I do find it quite entertaining today when I listen to Conservatives saying, we need to get rid of pen pushers and middle management in the NHS. I think, hang on a second, the woman whose portrait you've got probably all over your house is the one who introduced them. And I don't think you know that. Yeah, we ran a piece last week about how a guy whose parents... Elliot Wilson, whose parents were both NHS managers, about how annoying they used to find casualty. The stereotype of the pen pusher. But the NHS actually has very few dedicated managers, but lots of clinician managers. So it's a bit of a weird one. You could say it's 30% of staff or 3%, depending on what metric you use. It's really interesting because the Griffiths reforms inadvertently, despite, as you say, the clinician manager role, it did set up this kind of us and them culture between medics and managers you still see today very much you know talk in casual conversation with doctors who'll just be banging on about how annoying they find the managers and you say to them so how would you do it differently they're like, oh that's not my job <laughs> obviously it's not their job they should you know they're clinicians but there is this sort of idea that the managers don't know anything about running an organization what do you think is the biggest myth or misunderstanding about how the health service works the big misunderstanding, and it ties into the cultural love of the NHS as well, is that it is this wholly nationalised institution that is always under imminent threat from mass privatisation. And the point I always make is that 
Margaret Thatcher with her huge majorities, great deal of power, dominant in the sort of wider discourse and debate of the 1980s, rolling back the frontiers of the state in so many areas, did not privatise the health service. And if she didn't privatise the health service, then I'm not sure who is going to. And the Tories have been in control of the health service in government for what, I think it's something like 48 years of its 75-year history. I mean, I think they would have done it by now. There is privatisation in the NHS, but it's tiny. It's not even in double figures in percentage terms. And often when you get these sort of campaigning groups trying to expose the privatisation, they end up including like charities that have got contracts to run drug and alcohol clinics and that sort of thing, which I don't think any of us would really include in the sort of menacing Richard Branson bogeyman bracket. So there's that. I think people don't understand that GPs are private contractors. And that was the compromise that Bevan had to come up with to get the health service over the line. And he had to write extra safeguards into an amendment to the National Health Service Act a year afterwards just to guarantee their freedoms. And so I found it very entertaining when Sajid Javid and then Wes Streeting essentially proposed nationalising GPs because you had all these people who've spent the past sort of, you know, however many years saying, you're privatising us by the back door going, no, how dare you nationalise us? And a sort of this confusing moment where <laughs> it wasn't clear who the bad guys were at that moment. We don't have a sort of a wide understanding of what the structures are of the NHS. We see it as, and we were talking about this just before you press record about the word monolith for the health service. It's not a monolith. It never has been. Nye Bevan set the health service up. Yes, in the way that he wanted to, in that he nationalised the hospitals, but also in the way that he could in the arrangements for GPs. The existence from the very beginning of these private pay beds in NHS hospitals, which Barbara Castle tried to abolish, basically ended her political career. The BMA is very clear that it protects doctors' private practice as much as it does their NHS work. Yeah, I think on the monolith thing, it's like people confuse. I've definitely done this in my own writing. They use it as a synonym for centralised, but also because it's one source of funding compared to like the States where, or even most of Europe, where you might have your own in insurance or whatever. There's so many kind of different states or private models. Singapore is often started as one of the best in the world, which has a kind of mixture of basic care plus top up or something. And yet our entire health debate is UK or US, which is sort of that amazing British exceptionalism, isn't it? That we're the only country in the world and the only other country that might possibly exist is the other English speaking. Yeah. Whenever your colleague um, Kate Andrews goes on TV, everyone accuses her of uh, wanting to privatise the NHS. I mean, I know they hear her voice and they just don't listen because she is always very clear that no one wants the American system and they're going, oh, you're trying to sell it off. I remember when we keep coming back to the Lansley reforms because they were like really far reaching, but then it got kind of gutted partly by the bureaucracy rather than by politicians. But I remember vividly looking at an organogram of the health service before and after the Lansley reforms, and it was even more complicated. I mean, it takes a kind of almost like a PhD level understanding to actually understand how this organization functions. Yeah, and I'm not going to pretend that I have nailed that. I don't think there are many people who do understand it in its entirety. What I've tried to do in the book is to explain how we got to where we are today in terms of the funding pressures, the politics, the culture, the scandals, the things that actually matter to people. This is the funny thing about the political obsession with structures is that 
they obviously are hugely inconvenient for the people working within these systems. People who are patients don't really notice them. What they notice is, for instance, it's, you know, the mid-staff scandal. What caused that was a targets culture that led to a lot of bullying. It was also a focus on finances as the trust was trying to go for foundation trust status, which meant that they basically became denuded of staff because they were trying to cut costs. They didn't have enough nurses in particular. And that was how the cruelty developed because nurses were so stretched that they became used to a level of pain and suffering that was not normal for a nurse. I mean, pain and suffering being normal is part of being a healthcare professional. The threshold at mid-staffs changed because people just became used to not being able to provide basic care. That's the kind of thing that matters to people. So explaining how foundation trusts came about and explaining how they were assessed and so on, that's really important. Keith Joseph's 1970s reorganisation of the structure of the NHS gets a paragraph because it's worth explaining. It's not worth a chapter because it doesn't define where we are today. That actually brings me very neatly to my next question, which is, what extent do you think that the history of the NHS is one of evolution as opposed to kind of cycles of things, kind of reforms that were tried before being rebadged and that kind of thing? Because you see it a lot in things like education as well. So like academies are kind of a reheating of the late 80s city technical villages or something like this. Yeah, I think it is evolution because the next government does tend to accept the premises of most of the reforms of the previous government, even if they claim not to. So classic example of this is 97 election, Labour promised to abolish the internal market. It was a big campaign pledge and something Frank Dobson, who was then Shadow Health Secretary, became Health Secretary, was very clear he was going to do. They did sort of officially abolish the internal market, but it didn't actually disappear. So by 2000, Robert Winston, celebrated fertility scientist, was attacking the Labour Party for their handling of the NHS, partly because of his own family experience, but also because he argued that they hadn't abolished the internal market. And indeed, the purchaser-provider split was only really killed off by the Tories in the past few years. You know, Labour also had reiterations of Tory reforms because they then realised, having actually thought about health, particularly at sort of primary care level, that they needed some of the things they'd just abolished. So there is a loss of institutional memory sometimes, but what tends to happen is you get Labour accepting, for instance, the idea that there should be competition within the health service. Self-governing trusts, as they were called in the internal market and the Thatcher reforms, really laid the way for foundation hospitals in the Alan Milburn, John Reed era. So yes, I would say if you're looking for a sort of pattern like a heartbeat or something on the health services life. It's more that it rises and falls from crisis to desperately needed reform and then often a dropping off of attention because of something else and then crisis and then more reforms. And I think we all know which bit we're at at the moment, but we are starting to see the debate about desperately needed reforms and not just in terms of structures. So hear a lot from Wes Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary for Labour, about preventive care and about sort of rebalancing acute and community and preventive. And I think that's great because it shows that we're not just stuck in this really frustrating, perpetual state of, oh, let's move the commissioning structures around. It's actually what's the actual balance across the health service, which is, again, as I say, what matters to patients. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another great cliche about the NHS from its detractors is that it's a 20th century service operating into the 21st century. I mean, it strikes me just reading some of the examples of sort of tech that you mention, you know, AIs doing mammograms and things like this, that this is a very partial account. It is and it isn't. It's such a when it was designed, diseases were a communicable and preventable like TB, like diphtheria, like polio. Illnesses most of us can't even spell anymore, let alone feature of our daily lives and something that, you know, had huge isolation sanatoriums for and so on. Dementia did exist in the 40s. It definitely did. It wasn't part of the end of life pattern that most of us contemplate. Obesity obviously didn't exist as a societal phenomenon, partly because there wasn't that much processed food, obesogenic food, and also because rationing was still in place. So access to food was by its very nature limited. So there are lots of problems that have developed since then have become part of a complex mix of problems that one individual will have that the structures of the NHS are not good at dealing with in one person because they do tend to operate in silos. As I say, because it has been changing so much over the decades and because you, know, you look at AIDS, for instance, that was an illness that just appeared in the 80s, basically. And the health service, in my reading of it, responded pretty admirably. So it is something that is able to change and adapt. You know, obviously that's not on a par with sort of obesity crisis where you've got people with multiple comorbidities coming in. But it is a responsive service. What it struggles with is that, again, this is coming back to the funding balance. A lot of its funding is short-term responses to things that are in the important but urgent box because the important but not urgent box wasn't addressed. So you look at hospitals, they are, a lot of them are dilapidated now. Actually, they're losing, you know, their productivity is poor because they can't carry out as many operations as they should be doing each year because they're held together with stilts or pins or scaffolds. 
and within them their equipment is you know out of date or they know that you know in other health systems there are better robot surgery setups and so on there's just a really 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 low level of capital investment in this health service that really lets it down that's nothing to do with the era in which it was set up that's all to do with the political choices that are being made year to year by governments and so i sort of i hesitate when people say oh it's funding and its structure are outdated because I sort of think, well, I don't want to sound like somebody says, you know, communism was never given a proper try. But I think there are things that we could be doing that are really holding it back from flourishing. And I'm not clear how social insurance systems would be any more agile at dealing with obesity. Yeah, I also suspect you would see in a lot of other European countries with different systems, the same pressures. I mean, you do see most European countries invest a lot more in capital. And it is shameful that we haven't had a workforce plan until now because, you know, British medicine has been so prestigious in the world for centuries. And yet we don't have this view that we should be supplying our own health service with enough doctors. Instead, we're quite happy to take them from other health systems that are desperately in need. And I was being interviewed alongside Pat Cullen from the Royal College of Nursing. And she said that some of her colleagues had been to a nursing congress, I think in Canada, where there were representatives from lots of different countries who were pleading with Britain to stop taking their nurses. Now that's quite embarrassing today, isn't it? I think it, you know, it should have been embarrassing back in the 60s when Caribbean countries at the time were saying, actually, you know, we could do with some of our nurses back. I think it's unacceptable today. So there are lots of things that we don't do that are much easier to do than reforming the entire system. Yeah, it's a slight tangent, but it is one part of the immigration debate that we don't really ever think about. We're very myopic about it and parochial, but Paul Collier did a book called Exodus. Dwells heavily on the effects of the out, well, Exodus, especially from African countries. One of the things that is, runs like a kind of golden thread through the book, there are many themes that recur in your, there are 12 chapters and they dwell on different things. There's a broad chronology, but it's not strictly chronological. But, but one thing that really shines through that we all know about, you mentioned the 2012 opening ceremony, is the kind of weirdly emotive relationship we have with the NHS. You were saying you couldn't think of, the only thing I could think of of a democratic country is the Americans with the military over the top, like, national anthem before every NFL game with like soldiers on the pitch and stuff like that. But even that, it's not quite the same. It's a kind of more militaristic culture and, and so on. But my question is really how helpful or how much of a hindrance do you think that is to the operation of the service? I think it's largely quite unhelpful. You talk to people who work in the health service, senior people in NHS England, for instance, they're just doing a job running a health system and they find it a bit weird. You talk to doctors who are on the front line treating the first COVID patients, the first COVID deaths, and they were quite weirded out by the clapping. Actually, the sort of further away you got from the front line, the more appreciative these healthcare workers seemed to be, because I think it made them feel like they were part of something that at the time wasn't their specialism. And obviously, you know, COVID impacted the whole of the NHS. But I think those who were actually in the middle of it were just so bogged down by what was going on that they found the clapping quite odd. And they also then felt a bit gaslit because had the claps been followed by, you know, decent pay settlements and I think more importantly, a proper break for these guys, then they would have just, you know, faded as the start of appreciating workers better 
what this love of the NHS culturally doesn't really translate into is proper support for healthcare workers. And that's partly, I think, because when we were clapping our hero carers, we were putting them onto a pedestal that no human should be on. So, you know, we've all been at school with people who became doctors and they were just annoyingly good at everything. They were the ones who were playing like eight musical instruments, captain of the rugby team, top in science, also managing to fit in a huge amount of reading. And, you know, you met them at university. They did seem kind of a different species to the rest of us poor humanities graduates. And so I think we do get used to the idea that they've got this capacity for more than the rest of us. But actually, they do snap just like the rest of us. They do run out of puff. And there were lots of interviews I did that I was really moved by. One was on forced adoption. But one was, it was with one of the COVID doctors who treated one of the very first patients. And we were speaking 2022. I said to him, have you had break yet? And he just said, define a break. And he said, well, I've had a week off here and there, but that's it. You know, I think everyone can relate to that in that when I take a week off, I spend the first half of my week still stressed about work and the second half doing chores. And then I go back to work. Actually, if I had had a huge amount of trauma at work where I was working even longer hours than I was used to dealing with situations with patients like them dying without their family even being able to say goodbye to them, I would probably need a little bit more time to process that. And these doctors and nurses have not had that. That's really stayed with me, that line, define a break, because I just thought, well, we're really flogging you, aren't we? Yeah, I don't think normal sort of civilians, as you say, can appreciate what it's like to just be surrounded by death and illness all day. Also an abnormal level of death and illness. So that's the, I think because we were like, oh, well, you know, in hospital people die anyway. So we're the ones who are finding this hard. Actually, another doctor I spoke to said that the first time he'd ever cried in front of his juniors, he was a consultant, was when he had a patient who was going to die and he was telling this patient and the patient was really scared and there wasn't anything they could do, but also they couldn't get the family in. And so the whole thing was outside of his experience. That's traumatising. That's, you know, it leads to that sort of moral injury that, that we talk about quite a lot now with healthcare. Yeah, I think another baleful consequence of putting people on a pedestal and that comes across in some of the most grim episodes that you recount is that people have this faith in the health service to deliver for them. And then when that faith is undermined, it hits even harder. So things like Morecambe Bay, Midstaff, as you've already mentioned, I, I found Morecambe Bay might, it's not a horse race of horror, but it was very hard to read some of the things. It's a cliche, but you and I have both got young children as well. And I think I found it quite hard to write about Morecambe Bay because I, the, I mean, the first three years of my son's life have been dominated by this book because I signed the contract to write it while I was literally while I was in labour with him. You know, I was doing a lot of the research for Morecambe with a little baby on my knee. And so that was deeply upsetting to think of the loss that those families had when I'd had a, you know, relatively normal. And it was slightly personal as well in the sense that your husband was the MP. I haven't put this in the book, but when James Titcombe first started campaigning, James Titcombe's the dad who really uncovered the Morecambe Bay scandal. His son Joshua was born at Furness General and died as a result of a treatable infection that was missed. Horrific story. And James was really treated by lots of people as though he was mad with grief when actually something had gone wrong in the health system and he had to work so hard to uncover it. And John said that, you know, when he first came across James... Sorry, John is my husband. He used to be the, the MP for Baron Furness, which Furness General is one of the Morecambe Bay hospitals. 
and that's where Joshua Titkin was born. He thought that James was mad with grief and John has his, his own experiences with sort of very traumatic grief. So he, he wasn't being judgmental here. He later apologised to James because he then realised that James really had been onto something about the maternity unit at Furness General. So what James uncovered was a problem that actually is in existence across the NHS in maternity. And I really feel for him every time there's another maternity report out, sometimes by Bill Kirkup, who investigated Morecambe, he's also investigated the East Kent paternity scandals. And we also know about the Shrewsbury and Telford, and now we have the Nottingham um, scandals, which are being investigated by Donna Ockenden. Every time these reports come out, they say things that are very similar to the Morecambe Bay report. That's very traumatising for people who've been through these NHS scandals because they try to do something with their grief, which is, I don't want another child to die like this, or I don't want my mother to suffer in this way, as was the case for Julie Bailey in, in mid-staffs. And then they see it happen again, and it feels to them like they've been ignored, or that their efforts haven't sort of come to fruition. So that's the really awful thing. But what I find really striking about all of them is they still really believe in the NHS and they're still committed to it. They are heartbroken by it, but they're also... They didn't set out to destroy the NHS. They just wanted it to work better. Yeah. And it working better is, you know, it's ultimately, it's very simple, but is the aim of the game and what all these arguments are all about, along with a lot of political point scoring. And you finish the book with a sort of fairly crisp, shorter chapter about what the kind of future ahead is. I mean, what's your own take on the sort of, let's say the rest of this decade, how do you see things evolving? Like you mentioned it's very unlikely we'll have any kind of big pointless or otherwise top-down reforms. Yeah, and I think that would be good if we didn't have lots of meddling with the commissioning structure again. I think what would be great would be if we continued on the trajectory that some people are trying to take us. We're streeting all the Times Health Commission, which is really important as well. They're, they're very interested in rebalancing things so that people are seen at an earlier stage in their illness or even prior to an illness developing. That would require some reorganisation and reallocation of funding and there'd be a big debate about whether it's more funding to preventive and community while acute continues to maintain its level of funding given it's running so hot or whether it's about shifting resources and closing hospitals which there's nothing that excites an MP more than the prospect of a hospital closure in their constituency because they know they'll lose their seat if they don't chain themselves to the hospital. But what we could also see is in it an inertia over what needs to be done with the health service and the continued rise of private medicine. So you don't have privatisation by stealth. You have people who are paying for operations because they can't wait for two years for a hip replacement. That's not loaded people. That's people who've done a GoFundMe crowdfunder or something like that, which takes us back to the original problem the NHS was supposed to address, which was that it needed to exist in place of fear of getting ill. And I think... We are now in a place where people are a bit frightened about getting sick because they don't know if they're going to be seen in a timely fashion or if the healthcare workers looking after them with all the best intentions are going to have the time to look after them properly. And so that's a very precarious place for the health service to be in. I always say this when we've had books on, but I only choose people whose books I liked to come on the podcast anyway. So please, if you've not read it and you want to know how the NHS actually works and how it's ended up how it is today, then Fighting for Life is the book to read. Uh, available in you know all good bookshops and online and do tune in next week for another episode of the capex podcast if you've enjoyed it please do tell your friends leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts thanks very much
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.